Welcome to the Leanne Wood podcast. My guest on this episode is a political activist across a number of different but linked campaigns. Hussein Said is a lawyer with Asylum Justice. He is the founder and director of the Cardiff LGBTQ Law Clinic. He chairs Stand Up to Racism Cardiff, He's part of Black Lives Matter in Cardiff and Urpantherod, which is a Cardiff-based group of police observers. He's previously organised with Extinction Rebellion amongst other groups. All of this makes him more than qualified to talk to me about protest, its importance to our politics, what the threat to our right to protest means, and a bit more. Croeso, welcome Hussein to the Leanne Wood podcast. How and why did you first become involved with politics? What was it that sparked your political awareness and what prompted you to set up an LGBTQ plus law clinic? For me, I was born in Baghdad in Iraq. And I think when you're born in Baghdad and you're right in the belly of, of essentially a nation that is occupying where you were born, then you can't really get away from the politics or the political side of the world. It just becomes so natural to, to think about those things. My earliest memory, actually, of the news is watching the, the planes, the American planes go over Baghdad and, and we're just bombing it. That's, that's my first first visceral memory. And obviously that kind of makes you think about that we are placed in the world, the way the, the system works, how it it can just go to countries and just blow them up essentially and also my because I'm half washed my mother's side they were miners they're from Kafili slash the Bedouin area and just hearing about obviously the struggles that the miners went through and a proud little moment I have was my my grandfather had Trotsky written on our shed I never got to meet him but I, I, I do love to say that you know from there I sort of started reading more radical politics you know people would probably recommend such as you know Karl Marx and and those those sorts of people and and that's where I I identify you know that is completely where I identify and that's sort of like how I got into it really is I guess circumstance and an interest in those areas that made me try to understand my place in the world and I think you know of course when when you start reading about the world you start understanding your place within it but you also start understanding the way in which the system works to oppress every identity every person unless they are specifically the one percent and they exploit us every moment right in every part of our lives and you know that's with the lgbtq plus clinic i mean going into law my idea was always to go into human rights law and, and the the whole idea behind the clinic was actually to start a clinic specifically for the trans community i myself am a cishet man and you know obviously i'm not part of that community but something that i've noticed i have friends within that community and also just the trans community possibly the most oppressed community in, in the uk and it's as simple as that i mean the rise in transphobia is so sickening and I was part of Trans Equality Legal Initiative in like 2017. And, and to be honest, it's just considering how oppressed they are. And there's actually nothing out there really to protect their rights specifically. I mean, the clinic is the only LGBTQ plus clinic in the UK. So it's, you know, it was something that I thought of doing. And I sort of did it through this uh, this thing called the Justice First Fellowship. I won't bore you with that. But that's how it came about. And, you know, try to prioritize ensuring that our volunteers are LGBTQ plus, the lawyers we work with are LGBTQ plus. And, and it's sort of like gone from strength to strength. But the idea behind it was just trying to clog a space that, in my mind, was absolutely massive. And um, we're doing some part of that. But yeah, no, that, that's sort of where the idea came from. That's amazing because that is such a well-needed service. And as you say, this is a group of people who are possibly amongst the most oppressed, especially if they live in, in the UK where there is a particularly bad backlash at the moment. So the work you're doing is incredibly valuable and I'm sure very much valued by the trans community. 
Can I talk to you about protest? I know you've expressed your concerns about the threats to our right to protest. Can you explain why protest has been so important historically? What gains protest has brought about for people? And what is at stake if legal protest is made more difficult? Yeah, sure. I think the question about protest, though, when you really get into it, is a question about democracy. And when I talk about democracy, I don't just mean like your cliche idea about democracy. But in my opinion, the 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 democratic system within the UK isn't democratic within I I would say in any capitalist nation it's not a proper democracy I mean the idea that we have some mini little elections during like a few years and then every four years our vote is apparently meant to count for something I don't personally see that as something that has ever impacted anything really and I think from that you know the idea of protest is just the true voice of the people I mean if you just look at again I mentioned Iraq because I was born there in a protest of about 2 million people, the largest demonstration. Yeah, of course, we still went to Iraq. But that movement, you know, I think we would have gone to Syria, for example, if that hadn't been such a strong movement at the start of the century. And the idea behind protests is, is somewhat missed because it, it not only, in my mind, is the voice of the people, but it pushes people's consciousness to a, a new understanding of what's happening around them. I say this example quite often, but when we were protesting for Mahmoud, who died after police contact at the start of 2020, when we protested outside the police station, you know, I went outside, of course, and, and, I, and I may have said something I won't repeat the police and no one so people looked at me and they sort of some people laughed some people smiled and I think I was the only person that said it and then suddenly two days into it three days into it everyone was saying it and people who were going up and saying oh the police are our friends the first day it was loads of people the third day they were getting booed and you know and I think that it's never been more clear to me, the power of protest in that sense, just changing people's consciousness. I mean, if you look historically, of course, you have like the civil rights movement and, you know, this this discussion about what, what type of protest, when you talk about direct action, marches, riots, whatever you want to talk about, it all it's all part of the same idea, in my opinion. I mean, you, you, you're talking about protest. When, when the government talks about, when this government talks about protests and they're talking about violent protests, et cetera, I mean, I have my own, my own opinions about that sort of stuff, but the idea that this government wants to stop people from essentially holding a placard and wants to stop people from making a bit of nuisance. I mean, we're, we're going to the ends of, you know, things that just aren't really plausible. You're talking just ridiculous notions of what is a protest anyway. And it just shows, in my opinion, though, again, the whole the kill the bill demonstrations, et cetera, which we got the government to back down on somewhat. Again, it shows to the fear of the government at protests because they know that if they can get people to just think their role in society is to go to a ballot box every four years then in reality they're not going to be challenged but when people are starting to go outside and they talk they're kicking up a fuss and they're questioning things then that's when they get very scared that's why the police harassed us after the Mahmoud and the Moeya demonstrations that's why the police continue to harass us to this day in the wake of Black Lives Matter I mean these things is why Extinction Rebellion gets absolutely you know attacked by the police and by the state because they are afraid sometimes you, you have to look at the reaction of who you are protesting against to understand your success and if they weren't effective they would leave you alone they wouldn't do anything but of course these people and these activist groups are some of the most oppressed and some of the most surveilled groups in the country and that's because of course logically they have an impact that's a very good point two of the political movements that you've been involved with have in different ways faced strong attacks both from politicians and in some cases as well public opinion why is it important for those of us who want to see progressive political change to defend and support both the work of Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion and how can we best do that? It relates to the point you said at the beginning, Leanne, where it was my activism or whatever you want to call it is, has been within sort of campaigns which to, to most people's minds might be completely varied and, and not very related. 
But in reality, like these campaigns are so inherently related. I mean, if you were to talk about trans rights, I mean, Black Lives Matter or, you know, I should say like the, the Stonewall riots and, and the, the fight for black lives started by a black trans woman. If you're talking about, you know, the, the climate change, you're talking about Sudan, you're talking about um, Bangladesh that is going to be completely flooded. You're, to, you're talking about climate change that is affecting people right now. You're talking about the thirst for fossil fuels and the, the logic behind invading Iraq, for example, why they go there to collect oil. And, you know, you're talking and then that talks about foreign policy. It talks about war. And of course, with Black Lives Matter, you're talking about racism, but you're also talking about the very structure of power within our society and who is at the top and who is at the bottom. And what questions does that mean about how the police interacts with you, how the state interacts with you, how your employment reacts with you um, or interacts with you, I should say. Like the, these questions, they're all they're all incredibly linked. So what I would say to people when they talk about how to get involved or why should they get involved, they may look in the mirror, they, they may look at themselves and say, I'm not black. Or they may look in the mirror and be like, well, actually I'm quite wealthy. And you know, I, I, you know, I'm not gonna be in trouble in, in, in terms of climate change. I mean, I'm, I'm very well off, what's the issue? Like, I don't care if something's happening here. Well, you know, the, these things are all obviously impacting where you are right now. They're impacting everything you're doing. I mean, it's, it's the idea that, I don't know how to phrase it, but essentially when you're talking about these campaigns, they go to the very, crux of power that goes to the very crux of oppression and if you want to get involved with Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion number one they're incredibly important Extinction Rebellion has had a lot of attacks insulate for example, Insulate Britain has had a lot of attacks but look at the, look at what's happening I mean if you look in 10 years 20 years time cities will be underwater if you if you look just in a few in a few months or a few weeks people's energy bills will be rising by like 50 something percent I mean if you want to talk about the real actual impacts and and why are these people campaigning? Why are these people putting themselves at risk and putting their liberty at risk? You just have to look at your own personal circumstances. And I think that once you do that, I think getting involved in any way possible and defending Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion becomes an absolute priority, whether that's on social media, whether that's coming to demonstrations, or whether that's just doing things behind the scenes. I mean, Extinction Rebellion, when I was involved, I still am, but when, when I was more involved, it's, it's, such a, it's such a vast different arrangement of people from all sorts of identities, all sorts of backgrounds. And ultimately, all different things within these activist groups and I would say if you want to change these activist groups if you want to find out more about them just get involved because they're not clubs you know they're not they're not these ideas that you have a membership card I don't walk around with a membership card for, for Black Lives Matter or Sounds Racism or, or, or XR I mean they're just things that you want to get involved in if you want to get involved get involved because as soon soon enough these issues will be coming home to roost and in fact that really shouldn't be an excuse anyway because the issues that are happening overseas that are happening you know in places like Sudan in places like Yemen these people, you know, they're having essentially genocide within these areas. And let's not forget that our colonialist history and our and, and the way in which we pillage their land. And then when they come here, we say they're not allowed here. I mean, we are we are responsible for the majority of climate change historically. Our military um, has a bigger carbon footprint than about 50 countries. The Pentagon in the US is responsible for 5% of emissions. The climate, you can't get much more of an all-encompassing issue. It, it's something that will affect everyone's life and is affecting people's lives at this moment. It's why we'll end up invading certain countries in the future. It's why people are going to come here and let's and I'll just I'll just quickly say this because the question about climate refugees you know something that isn't spoken about enough either you know if somebody likes to try to defend refugees they'll say it's because of obviously being persecuted you'll have a few racists that will say it's just because they want to come get our jobs which is ridiculous of course but you know what people never talk about is actually people are coming here because their village has just been swamped their city has just been flooded you know no one talks about those things estimates say about 250,000 to a million climate refugees by 2050 again you know the narrative that people think everyone's going to come here 
is just such a ridiculous notion because 1% of refugees will set foot in the UK. Majority will go to internally displacement within their own countries or next door neighbours, essentially. But it's those countries that will, again, bear the brunt. And when we sit here talking about, oh, well, these climate protesters, why are they sitting in a road on the M4? Like, mate, get a grip. Like, get a grip. You're getting upset because there's something I know I understand. And there's questions about, for example, that I completely identify with. The idea is about who you attack as sitting on the road impact those at the top of society. Is it a classist thing to be stopping people from going to work? And I understand those questions, right? I understand that. But of course, and you know, I disagree with some methods of Extinction Rebellion. That's why I joined it to try and change certain things. But of course, when you're talking about those issues, the crux of it, the real issue at the heart of it isn't about that they'll tell you that, oh, they're, they're trying to do this just to make people comfortable and they're just being their own worst enemies but often quite simply these people in XR and in Silic Britain are just regular people who don't know what to do and they're just trying their best and they're sitting in a road because sadly they can't knock on down a street street store and sadly they don't have any democracy where they can actually make a difference so they're doing something that they're able to do and they will do and you know all the power to them because it's more than a lot of people are doing you know and, and I think that you support that because the, the consequences are far graver than being late to work one day. I totally agree. And what you've said there sets a scene. There's been a fueling of racism linked to the problems of people being forced to move out of their home countries. And globally, politics has taken a fast slide to the right in many different countries. You could say the Overton window has moved substantially in the last decade or so. Can you share your concerns about the rise of the far right globally and what would be your message to those of us who are concerned enough about this to want to do something about it? Yeah, I think the easy answer is always when people ask this question, the easy answer is just sort of a condemnation of the far right as these people are outrageous, racist, terrible, all of which are true. But to understand where the far right come from, I think altogether a completely different question. And I think often we have to look closer to the real understanding of, of the political spectrum. In my opinion, what we saw happen to Corbyn, for example, is and what we see happen or saw happen to Bernie Sanders is really the answer to the question of how the far right are, are rising. And I think often, in my opinion, it's, it's very much to do with the idea of, of centrism, right? It's the idea of people like Tony Blair, people like Barack Obama, people like Joe Biden, people like Hillary Clinton, they and people like David Cameron. And as you can see, the theme here is I'm saying people from all sorts of different parts, apparently, of the political spectrum. But of course, the, the way to really fool people into the idea there is a political spectrum is to stop debate happening, but outside of the realms of what you want but allow the debate within that section of, of debate to be very lively and to almost look like people are saying completely different things when in reality they're all saying the same thing and they're all part of the same party so like quote George Carlin like it's a big club and you're not in it um, which is why you see Barack Obama having lunch with George Bush a war criminal Barack Obama's a war criminal as well it's just, that's true but the the questions about you know, how does a far right happen? Well, it's when you start, when when people like Jeremy Corbyn or, or Bernie Sanders, who in reality, when you talk about the New Deal era of the US or post-war Britain, are saying very mainstream ideas, ideas that weren't seen as radical. And now suddenly centrism, the idea that there is politics is, is a never moving entity that doesn't become fluid with time, says to you that actually these ideas that they have are very radical now. Yeah, they're extremely radical. When in reality, there, there is, there is of course, no such thing as a centre. It's where they like to place the centre and they will move the goalposts for however they want. And suddenly what Jeremy Corbyn is saying is absolutely outrageous. But 
by doing that, of course, what they do is number one, they discredit the left and they make people like myself look absolutely like outrageous. But what, what they really do is they create a vacuum and they create a vacuum for people like Nigel Farage and Donald Trump to come in and start taking the place of this anti-establishment. And these people are establishment people. Nigel Farage, I think, went to boarding school. Trump, like, obviously we know is like, is a millionaire or whatever. Like, these people are establishment figures. They're not anti-establishment figures, but they will take the place of, of that idea. And they will, they will start talking about, oh, you need to, we need to help working class people. We need to do this. When, of course, they're giving handouts to big business on the side. But these people are talking as if they are working class heroes. And they've only been allowed to do that is because people like Jeremy Corbyn have been vilified as anti-working class, people who have been fighting for just the, the right for a minimum wage their whole life are now being seen. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, a man who, who was fighting against apartheid in the 70s, wakes up and is apparently he's the biggest racist in the UK. I mean, I can't imagine the, the, how that, um, that must feel. You know, but the, you know, this is a concerted effort because the, it, shows, it says two things about this system where it says that people like Tony Blair who are war criminals, it allows them to remain completely palatable to the, to the public, which, you know, to be fair to the British public, he isn't pal palatable, everyone hates him, but the idea to the political establishment, he's a palatable figure that can just come back to, to the Labour Party whenever he wants or to run for, for election or whatever. And it shows that they would much prefer somebody like Tony Blair and they'd much prefer somebody like Donald Trump than they would prefer somebody like Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders. And when you start asking those questions and you start thinking about those things, then you start understanding the way the system works is very much to that Trump is actually an outlier of this system in the sense that he is George Bush, that the, the evolution of George Bush and, and uh, Barack Obama leads to Trump. But of course, he is the outlier in the sense that the liberal media and the liberal class do not want somebody like Trump really doing those things. They'd much prefer somebody like, a, somebody like Obama or Biden to be doing it. And when you start thinking about it like that, then you understand that actually this system is, is not only corrupt, but it will very much allow, allow itself to fall into complete dis arraying and, and collapse essentially it's willing to take somebody like Trump it's willing to allow somebody like Trump to come into politics and it's willing to allow him to not win because I think the media overall were on Clinton's side but you know it allows him to get some form of, of respectability despite him being of course a raging racist and an awful person and it would much prefer that than it would prefer just the slight redistribution of wealth it would much prefer that than any form of dignity being afforded to some of the poorest in our society. It'd much prefer that than any semblance of fairness in our society. It'd prefer drones over Pakistan. It would prefer genocide and famine in Yemen. It would prefer all of those things more than you going to work and feeling as if you're getting the pay that you deserve. I mean, it is a system of insanity. It is a, it's a genocidal system. And, you know, the far right went for me. I mean, of course, you condemn it and etc. But it's almost like you can see where it comes from. It's like people who are, you know, because there are two types of people. There are, of course, the fascists who you don't even want to speak to. But these just general people, even people maybe in, in my um, family, to be honest, like, um, who, who might vote for the Conservatives, for example, um, or, or, who might vote Republican if they're in the US. They're not like complete and utter. Like they, they, they voted, like the Red Wall, they had voted Labour in the past. And now suddenly they're voting Conservative. It's because things are being spoken to them in a way that they feel like they understand. It's been, they, they're spoken to them in a way that they feel like they can identify with because the scapegoating of migrants has been given an A-OK -okay sort of rite of passage by the by the media, including BBC News, including the mainstream media. The idea that 
protesters like Black Lives Matter in Slip Britain, the terrorists, etc., has been given the complete AOK by the mainstream media. And then you question, well, of course, this is likely to happen. Why would it not happen? Because suddenly Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders or anyone who's fighting, or yourself, Leanne, anyone who's talking about things that are actually in the interests of regular people are being scolded are being seen as enemies of regular working class people. And sadly, you know, we don't have a system that is fair. We don't have a system that articulates issues and says things in a way that people understand. And I'll finish on this as well. Like, I think there's been, there's been a, a real concerted attempt against, against populism. And what I mean by that is that politics is inherently us versus them. And, and if, if you're not willing to be if you're not willing to fight against people like Boris Johnson, if you're not willing to fight against people like Keir Starmer, then of course you, you will just, their goal is to essentially make it as, as if all these people are fighting for the same cause and anyone who's saying anything different is considered to be completely out of the realms of any acceptable discourse. But you have to, you have to be populist. I mean, they always use this against Jeremy Corbyn that, oh, he's populist. He just says things that, you know, people will like. Well, of course, because why should he not? Why should he not be talking about the crisis of food banks? That's not populist. That's just reality. But of course, just like law, they will fix it around. They'll coat it in jargon and they'll coat it in these ideas that, you know, you you regular people don't understand politics. You don't understand what debt means. You don't understand what the economy means. So don't don't think about getting involved because what he's saying is far too simple. Well, in fact, it is very simple. It's simple because Boris Johnson and the Conservatives or Tony Blair and the Labour Party have been giving money away to corporations, have been spending our money on, money on the military to kill soldiers and to kill innocent people in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's very simple. But they want you to think it's this convoluted plot that no one can understand and politics is just for the educated class, etc., etc. When in reality, it's just a load of rubbish. It's just an absolute load of rubbish, to be quite honest with you. And they are scared that people will understand that. What can we do about all of this? How can people resist these attempts to try to pull the wool over their eyes? It is very depressing, but I find that, you know, two quotes always come to my mind when I think about this. And the first is from Gramsci when he says, and I paraphrase, but he says, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. And also Howard Zinn, who says that history is changed not by one person, but by little acts of millions of people. And I think when we frame it in that way, we can start every, every movement, every change within our history every revolution, whatever you want to call it, has started by very small steps. And, and I think that, you know, how we can resist this is by just being active, being speaking to your friends, even the smallest things. But, you know, knowing that sometimes, to be honest, that isn't enough. And we need to sometimes go that extra mile. We need to start thinking about things like direct action. We need to start thinking about things like mass, mass protests, national strikes. We have to start thinking about, because the union movement has been in my opinion, extremely disappointing. Why are they not calling for mass strikes? Why are they not calling for this? Well, how can anyone read in a newspaper or a headline the, the biggest drop in living standards for like 50 years and just think, yeah, sure. Where are the unions in this, in this discussion? Why is the organised labour force not doing something about this and I think if you are part of unions get involved and be militant within them if you are involved in activist groups or if you're not involved in activist groups I should say just get involved I mean this is the nature of the capitalist system right is that they will make you so tired and they will make you work nine to five and they will make you just question about your mental health question everything in your life 
And they know they're doing it because you're too exhausted then to do anything else. How can you protest when you're just trying to survive and you're a single mother, for example, in a sexist, misogynistic society and you're just trying to get about your life? I mean, it's so difficult because so many people who are being completely screwed by this system are those that are, of course, under the most pressure and have the least amount of time, you know, to do things about it. And the capitalist system has, has gone on for a long time because of those very ideas. That's how it works. And it worked quite well, sadly. But, you know, the only thing I can say is that get involved in your in grassroots organization even if i don't personally believe in parliamentary politics too much make sure that you're writing to your mp trying to force them to do things for example when it comes to israel palestine try and force boycott try to get the word about yemen start talking about the over use of food banks that we've never seen before in our lifetimes just do anything really i mean it really is like that leanne to be honest do anything like because it's it's so bad out there and it's so difficult but i think this cause for optimism we have have managed to do some great things in Cardiff where we've managed to, to really fight police brutality as best we can. Yeah, we haven't won the battles and, you know, Sally Mahmoud and Moeyed, you know, passed away at the hands of the police, but we've forced them to I think we've changed a lot of the consciousness in Cardiff. We've forced some, some misconduct notices. But of course, the difficulty is, is that when you're doing these things and when, you, when you're in activism, you're some part working within the system and, of course, the police are unaccountable, the government is unaccountable. So that's why sometimes I think we do need to think outside the box. We need to start thinking about how we're going to do things that can actually really affect the institutions. You pose some big questions there for the trade union movement. You're right that a lot more can be done than is being done at the moment, certainly. Do you think there's an opportunity for us to take a different political route here in Wales? That's an interesting question. With Yes Cymru got a lot of people involved. I think there's been some form of a collapse in that, if I'm honest, because of all sorts of allegations of transphobia to misogyny, etc., which, which is incredibly sad to see. I think with Yes Cymru, what I found, I wasn't part of it, but what I found, not that I don't believe in the independence of Wales, but I just wasn't part of it. But what I found is that the question of like nationalism and the question of like independence... If you're going to have a nationalist movement, you have to ensure that you're not just trying to recreate a different nationality of the ruling class. And sometimes I found that, yes, Cymru were quite fine with just creating the same very set of circumstances within Wales, but it's just being called Welsh independence. And by doing that, they did attract certain people who actually don't have the political understanding or the similar sort of understanding of politics in the way a lot of people who want independence actually do, which is an anti-racist Wales, which is a Wales that defends women's rights, that defends LGBTQ rights, a Wales that is actually tearing itself away from the disgusting nature of parliamentary politics under Boris Johnson and the Labour Party in, in England and actually sees ourselves as something different. And I think that's actually a really powerful notion. Because I think it's, you know, the way in which they talk about Wales is, oh, there's such a small place, they could never survive. I mean, these, this scaremongering, whether it was in Scotland. And so I don't think we need England. It's like, I think there, there were a lot of questions about independence in Wales and the questions about racism, for example, the questions about whether Wales is actually a colony that those sort of, which I, you know, I don't, I don't really agree with the idea that Wales are as oppressed as say nations in Africa that deserve reparations. And, and they're, they're very difficult questions. But one thing I do think is, that structured well enough and structured with an internationalist gaze, which is Wales is one of an international community of working class people who are being exploited by this government, exploited by the world system, I think is incredibly a powerful notion. And it's something much more powerful than being under the thumb of Boris Johnson and the never-ending Conservative Party. And it would be much more powerful than if Keir Starmer ever gets in, much more powerful than being under his rule. I mean, I think that's the core of it, is that <laughs> but, but what we're saying is actually to redo the whole thing. I think that's the powerful end. But we're not saying 
people who, who want independence aren't saying we just want Welsh Labour here and just like we're just going to draw a little harsher line on the border. It's a belief and imagination in something that can be better. And I think that it's incredibly powerful. And whether you believe 100% independence or not, I don't really care. But what Welsh independence is saying is that we've had enough. And it's very, it is very anti-Tory. It is very anti-racist at its best. And it is very pro-socialism. It's very pro-uniting people of different backgrounds under one banner. And I think that's a really powerful notion. And I think there is a potential for that. Of course, again, like I said, that sometimes if you don't do it properly, I'm not saying I could have done it properly, don't get me wrong, but if you don't do it properly, you can end up in an absolute mess. I hope the Welsh independence movement hasn't been completely destroyed by actions of certain people. But, you know, it's it's important that when we talk about independence, we talk about something that unites people under a, a liberatory politics, not a politics of the same, because I personally don't want to be run by Welsh ruling class and English ruling class, Scottish ruling class. You know, it doesn't matter to me what nationality they are. They're, they're still the same ruling class. And if you're not going to offer me anything more than I don't want it. But there is a possibility for us, I think. I, I don't see why not. But definitely it has to be in the more radical way of thinking. I, I agree with you entirely there. There is absolutely no point in becoming independent if you're just going to recreate all the problems that exist already. The opportunity for Wales to become independent is so that we can do things very differently to the way they are now and so that we can take our place on the world stage in a way that we're not at the moment. I think you've given us some fantastic insights into your work, your outlook, your background and the reasoning for coming to the conclusions that you have. It's been a fascinating discussion. I'm really, really grateful to you for your contribution to this podcast. Diolch Diolch, thank you, Leanne. Appreciate it. I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood 